Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. All right, a couple of announcements before we get started. Somebody lost a little uh, sand disk thumb drive. It was found outside the back door here, On the, if that belongs to anybody. Mark? Okay. All right. That's up here. And then I guess most of you got the announcement, but um, the memorial service for uh, Sconey has been set for a week from Saturday morning at 1030 in the morning on Saturday, September the 6th, and we will have... Uh, reception here afterward. His sister will be coming in from Las Vegas, and I'm sure there'll be a number of other people who are coming from uh, all uh, all different parts from here and there. And so we're going to uh, uh, have a reception afterwards here at the church. So you can talk with Ann Wright about those details if you want to be involved. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. You can use First John 1, 9 if necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we have your word to inform us as to who you are and who we are and what you have done to provide salvation for us. In your word, you reveal to us all these many wonderful doctrines related to the person and the work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we study your word and as we learn about him, we are uh, just amazed and astounded at how much you have done uh, to provide so much for us. Now, Father, as we study your word, may we not take this lightly. May we not uh, become distracted in our thinking with the affairs of, and circumstances of our lives, but let, let us uh, take the time during this hour to put our focus on your word, both your written word and as it teaches us about your son, the living word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in a study in Hebrews, and in Hebrews chapter 9, The writer of Hebrews is developing his ongoing um, doctrines related to the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is at the very core of the importance, or the, the core emphasis of Hebrews. Because in this section, which begins in uh, chapter uh, 7, goes through chapter 10, That's really the heart of the whole epistle to the Hebrews. And the focal point is on understanding the, uh, just the, the riches, the depth, the breadth of everything that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. But what it means for us today 
in terms of his high priestly ministry, he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he is seated at the right hand, which is the doctrine of the session. And so the question is, well, what is the Lord Jesus Christ doing right now? And one of the key things that the Lord Jesus Christ is doing for each of us is interceding for us. He is involved in intercessory prayer, and we are coming to a part of the tabernacle tonight, a piece of furniture in the tabernacle that specifically looks at this aspect of intercessory prayer, and that is the altar of incense. And the altar of incense speaks of Jesus Christ, who is our intercessor. We are uh, continuing to study the tabernacle because an understanding of the tabernacle, the rituals that occurred in the Old Testament in the tabernacle, and the furniture in the tabernacle, and what each piece of furniture did in terms of uh, how it spoke about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ is crucial for us in order to uh, understand uh, what, what, who he is and what he did. And as we look at the Old Testament background, it will enhance and strengthen our understanding of what is said in Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10. So we have a few uh, pictures here. Here's a depiction of the tabernacle at night with a pillar of fire indicating the Shekinah or the dwelling presence of God. We see the organization in the background of the uh, tribes of Israel, each one according to their tribe, each one laid out in very orderly, organized uh, manner. Uh, we see the uh, inner tent, which is the main tabernacle itself, the tabernacle prophet, uh, proper, which is composed of two compartments, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. In this schematic, we see the cutaway here of the tabernacle itself, the uh, outer veil that the priest would enter to go into the outer room, the holy place, and in the holy place he would see three pieces of furniture. Each of these we have spent time studying, uh, two of them at least, the uh, golden menorah, the candlestick, which speaks of Jesus Christ as the light of the world. On the right side, uh, which would be on the north side, you have the table of showbread, which had 12 loaves, or one each for the 12 tribes of Israel, made of unleavened bread. The furniture itself made with acacia wood, covered with gold, depicting the hypostatic union, the undiminished deity, and the uh, perfect humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The unleavened bread, picturing his impeccability. Uh, and then in the centerpiece, you have the altar of incense, which is the piece of furniture that is the closest to the presence of God. And as a priest would enter in and would uh, first go to the altar to light the incense or, uh, and, or to pray at the altar of incense, this is the closest that any priest could come uh, to God. The high priest alone could go into the uh, Holy of Holies once a year. Now, there's another thing that uh, I want to point out as we go through this. That we go go back. Let me see. I guess we'll just start with this schematic. There's a an interesting uh, interesting thing that hit me today as I'm looking at this overview and what happens when the priest go, enters into the tabernacle, tabernacle all the way in to the Holy of Holies. Think about where he's headed. He is headed into the 
presence of God, the closest that any uh, human being in the Old Testament would ever get to God inside the Holy of Holies. What had to happen in order for that human being to be able to enter into the presence of God? And that's what is illustrated in each of these steps. So the first thing that he would do is he would have to go in and there would be uh, there would be the uh, sacrifice at the altar, at the brazen altar, speaking of the atoning, the substitutionary atonement work of Christ. Before anybody can come into the presence of God, they, there has to be a faith alone in Christ alone, meaning trusting in his substitutionary atonement. The next thing that has to happen is there had to be a cleansing of the hands and the feet, which is a picture of confession of sin that ongoing experiential cleansing. There's a positional cleansing and a positional forgiveness that takes place at salvation. But in terms of our day-to-day walk, we sin uh, as we go through our life, and so there is the experiential cleansing that must take place, Each and we confess our sins. So the, all, the uh, labor depicts that cleansing uh, that goes on in terms of confession of sin. Then he would enter into the... Uh, holy place, and in the holy place, he sees three things. On his left is the golden menorah, as I said, picturing Christ as the light of the world, but what this indicates as well as Christ being the light of the world is enlightenment that comes from the living word. The word of God that we have, the scripture, is the mind of Christ. So only when you have come to Christ, believed in him in terms of substitutionary atonement, then been cleansed of your sin in terms of confession, 1 John 1, 9, can you then come into a place of closer fellowship with God where you have access to enlightenment on the one hand, you have on the, on the other hand, on the right hand, you have the table of showbread which depicts fellowship and nourishment, and then... Straight ahead, you have the altar of incense depicting prayer. So these three objects depict enlightenment, fellowship with God, nourishment, and fellowship with God, communion with God in terms of prayer, all of which cannot take place unless there has been a prior trust in the substitutionary atonement and cleansing from sin. It's a tremendous picture of how you can't go anywhere in the Christian life in terms of learning the Word, applying the Word, having fellowship with God, or any kind of of effective prayer, unless you have, that's been preceded by trust in Christ as your Savior and cleansing from sin in terms of confession. So I just thought I would bring that out because it's never quite struck me And that way, as you look at these three objects here as uh, enlightenment from the, from Christ, from the uh, Word of God, and uh, fellowship with the table, and then prayer. So we've looked at the table of showbread last time in terms of uh, the, uh, it depicting Christ as our source of nourishment, depicting fellowship, eating a meal, and this time we're looking at the altar of Incense. So the key passages, central passages for the altar of incense are found in Exodus chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, 
and verses 34 to 38. The altar of incense uh, was three feet high, four and a half cubits. It's uh, the smallest of the objects in that it is only 18 inches square. It was to be one cubit square. A cubit was approximately 18 inches. Uh, like the table of, uh, like the table of showbread, it was made of acacia wood, which depicted the uh, the perfection of Christ's humanity, and it was covered in gold, which pictures his undiminished deity. The top of the uh, altar of incense had a crown molding of gold with a horn on each corner. And as you can see in the picture, the horns here are depicted with the blood that was put on the horns, and we'll look at their symbolism as we go through through this. There's a ring on each corner, which would allow the poles to pass through to, in order to carry the altar. The poles themselves were also made of acacia wood and uh, covered in, in gold. Exodus 30, verse 1, we read, Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit, and its width a cubit. It shall be square. Its height shall be two cubits. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. So it's an, it's an integrated whole. Uh, verse 3, you shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its gold, and you shall make a gold molding all around for it, and you shall make two gold rings for it under its molding. You shall make them, you shall make them on its uh, two side walls on opposite sides, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. This is a picture of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 1.14, we read, And the Word was made flesh. Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state, in his eternality. He is entitled the Word. He is the revelation of God. And that word logos, translated word, is just loaded with all kinds of meaning, all shades of meaning. It means thinking, it means studying, it means communication, it means uh, logic, rationality. All of these things are embedded uh, within that concept of lagos. And in the Old Testament, it had a very rich meaning in terms of the expression of, of God and the communication of who God is. And the Old Testament word was memra. So if you read this as either a Gentile or a Jew, it had a tremendous connotation. For a Jew especially understood this in terms of the manifestation of God. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And that word for dwelling here is the Hebrew uh, verb skenao, which comes from the Hebrew word Shekinah. You can hear the same consonants, that that sibilant S and then the K and then the uh, N, skene. Uh, that's the same, comes from Shekinah, and it means dwelling place or uh, tabernacle. Same word. The idea here is the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
So it is in uh, these depictions that we have in the Old Testament, in the furniture, that we have an understanding of the person and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I pointed out almost every time we've had a lesson on this, it's so important to understand this because in the early church, a Gentile church by the late 2nd, 3rd century, 4th century A.D. had such trouble trying to articulate the, the doctrine of the hypostatic union or the unity of the uh, human and divine na- natures in Christ when if they had fully understood the Old Testament, they would have grasped that. But because the, uh, the, the early church, the Gentile church, pretty much divorced themselves from the Jewish background and from the Jewish church in the early part of the second century, they lost the, the, that rich understanding of the Jewish backgrounds to understanding the Gospels, understanding the life of Christ, and understanding a lot of the, the uh, nuances that were going on there. So the altar is made in such a way as it is to depict the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his function as a priest, as our high priest, in terms of his intercessory ministry. Uh, beginning in verse 6, we see the placement of the ark, the placement, excuse me, the placement of the altar of incense. In verse 6, the altar of incense, you shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the ark of the testimony. So it emphasizes that proximity to the dwelling place of God between the cherubs on the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies. In front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testament, in front of the mercy seat that is over the Ark of the Testimony, where I will meet you. Now, the interesting thing here is that the preposition here in the in the Hebrew clearly indicates something literally in the face of or under the eyes of, and it comes to mean in everyday language before or in front of something. So it's clearly to be placed in front of the veil. However, in Hebrews 9, verse 3, and we've, we looked at this at the beginning of the study, we'll look at it again in detail, states that the altar of incense is meta, the Greek preposition, after or behind uh, the veil. And there it is emphasizing the fact that that the, the, what happens at the altar when the incense is burned, the the incense is drawn into the Holy of Holies where where you have the dwelling presence of God. And that's the, the emphasis here is that it is its function is to bring the incense into the presence of God as a picture of prayer ascending to God and going into his presence. This is why the writer of Hebrews uses the preposition uh, meta, after or behind the veil, because that's where the incense uh, was designed to go. This veil indicates that separation from a holy God, a God who is set apart or distinct, and the veil itself, which hung in the temple, the second temple, the Herodian temple at the time that Christ was crucified, that veil was ripped from top to bottom at the time of the crucifixion, and that's reported in all three Gospels, in Matthew 27:51, Mark 15:38. And Luke 23:45. Next time we'll come back and look at the significance of the veil as we go forward into the uh, Holy of Holies. 
The altar of incense is also based on the heavenly prototype, which is referred to in Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, which is uh, very close to where we're uh, studying in Revelation right now, where the uh, martyrs who are in heaven are praying to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ that he would bring judgment, complete the judgment on the unbelievers, on Satan, the Antichrist, uh, in the tribulation. Of course, his response is, not yet. So that is the altar that is depicted there in Revelation 8.3. Now, one of the key elements here in the altar of incense is the incense itself, and that it was designed to be, like everything else, distinct and unique. It was a specific recipe that's given, starting in verse 34, and no one else was to make incense according to this particular uh, recipe. Verse 34 and 35, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take for yourself spices, stacta and anika, and galbanum, spices with pure frankincense, there shall be an equal part of each. So they would take an equal amount of each one. Uh, they would uh, grind it up and make a fine powder of it and then blend it together. Uh, verse 35, with it you shall make incense, perfume, the work of a perfumer, uh, salted, pure, and holy. So it is set apart. It is a specific recipe of incense and it is specific in its function only in the uh, only in the tabernacle now this is important because what god is emphasizing in all of this is his holiness and as i pointed out before that concept of holiness isn't the idea of that which is morally pure or is uh, or without sin it is an idea that many times you'll read in theologies, they combine both uh, his perfect righteousness and his justice. But it goes beyond that because the core meaning of the idea of kadash, which is the Hebrew uh, verb for to make holy, is the idea of set apart or distinct. And perhaps the closest we get in English is the word unique. It is something that is uniquely oriented to God and it can't be used for anything else. And so God is emphasizing his uniqueness, his righteousness, his justice, and that you can only come into his presence according to his stipulations. He has the right to decide what the terms are on which his creatures will come into his presence. And because he is righteous, he can't have fellowship with that which is unrighteous. And therefore, his justice will not allow anyone to come into his presence unless they meet the standard of his righteousness. And that's what all these things depict, the substitutionary sacrifice, the cleansing that takes place at the labor. All this depicts what is necessary in order for a sinful human being to come uh, into the presence of God. And he defines exactly how this is to to occur. So this incense was made according to a specific recipe. You weren't supposed to use just any incense, and this incense couldn't be used in a profane or common way. People could not use this same recipe. In verse 36, the description of how it was to be made continues. You shall beat some of it very fine and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. That would be on the altar of incense. It shall be most holy to you. The incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourself. It shall be holy to you 
for the Lord. How many times have we seen the word holy now? Three times. The Holy Spirit saying, do you get the point? How many times do I have to uh, repeat myself to emphasize it? And then in verse 38, whoever shall make anything like it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his people. Now, that seems like a pretty harsh penalty, that if anyone were to duplicate this, then they were to be completely uh, removed from the people and have no uh, contact with the people. They were to be just completely cut out. Now, let's go back and look at the uh, these different uh, spices that are used. The first that's mentioned is a word that is unfamiliar to most of us. It's the word stacta. And this is a word that is not used uh, in too many other places in the Scripture, and so we're not real sure what it is. It is either a sweet, gummy-type substance, a resin, um, or it is uh, made, made from myrrh, or it is distilled oil from myrrh. So it's an extremely valuable, extremely expensive, and rare substance. The second substance that's mentioned is uh, onika, and this is made from a the shell of a mollusk. Again, a uh, rare, uh, in, a rare uh, commodity, and when it was burned, it gave off a perfumed fragrance. The third element that's mentioned is galbanum, which was also a gum resin that would emit a somewhat milky sap with a balsamic odor and it was derived from the Syrian fennel. And then we have frankincense, which is a fragrant white gum that comes from a tree called the Salai tree found in Arabia. So these substances were mixed together. These four spices were mixed in equal proportions in order to make the, uh, make the incense. Now, as the priest would come in, he had to go through certain preparations before he could come in and deal with anything in the uh, Holy of Holies and in terms of intercessory prayer. So before the priest could offer the incense of prayer, three requirements had to be met, as I've indicated already. First of all, he had to minister at the brazen altar. This is where the blood from the animals was shed, the sacrifices, emphasizing that before anybody can pray, they, they have to come to God on the basis of a sacrifice. And, uh, you know, I just remembered some years ago, it always seems to happen in a political, some sort of political season, but this was a time back in the, I think it was back in the 70s, Jimmy Draper was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, I think he was the pastor of uh, First Baptist Church up in Oklahoma City, and it was, uh, it might have been back when... Uh, uh, that um, farmer from Georgia was running for president. And um, he was asked if, um, if, Jew, if God heard the prayers of Jews. And he said, no, not unless they're a believer. And so the press just raked him over the coals. And the world does not understand this. They do not want to... Uh, except the exclusivity that we have in the Scripture. And that's what you see depicted again and again in the uh, 
this, the rituals of the tabernacle is that God says there's one and only one way to come into my presence. You have, there's only one entrance to the tabernacle. You, there has to be a sacrifice first. There has to be cleansing second. And you can't come into the presence of God in prayer unless you uh, are first saved. Someone who hasn't trusted Christ as their Savior can't get anywhere in terms of prayer unless that prayer is related to God showing them how to get saved and to come into his presence. That's the only prayer that God, in effect, would answer. Uh, is is just a prayer to somehow know about God or know something more about Him to know how to come into His presence. So the the sacrifice has to be there has to be the shed blood of Christ. This is going to be emphasized within the passage in uh, Hebrews chapter nine. The second thing is, as I pointed out, is there had to be a cleansing from. Uh, defilement on the part of the priest. This is described in Exodus chapter 30, verses 18 to 20. It is a depiction of cleansing from sin. At the time that the priest is first installed in office, when uh, they would be washed from head to toe, that is a picture of the positional or complete cleansing that occurs for every believer at the instant of salvation. But then each time you'd come into the tabernacle, he would have to wash his hands and wash his feet. This is emphasized in 1 John 1, 6 through 10, that we have to come into the presence of God on the basis of uh, being experientially cleansed, and it is the blood of Christ that continually cleanses us. And every now and then you run into people, and there's a lot of these kind of people out there, by the way, who think that you don't really need to confess your sins in order to have forgiveness or to come into God's presence. And they'll go to verses for example, like Ephesians 1, 7 and others that talk about the fact that in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And they don't make a distinction between positional forgiveness and experiential forgiveness. And so they merge these, these things together. And you have various uh, people. There's a guy up in Dallas, who, and he may be on the radio here in Houston. I just haven't heard him. His name's Bob George. And he has made, he has built his whole ministry on bashing anybody teaches that you need to confess your sins. And the reason that came to mind was we had a group of pastors meeting this morning. We were talking about this, and somebody brought him up. I uh, had read his book recently, but you'll hear him. And he said, these people who confess their sins, and what I don't understand is if you read through First uh, John 1, 6 through 10, 1 John 1, 7 says that the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us, present tense, continually cleanses us from all sin. Now, what they try to make that mean is that because Jesus has died now and he's paid the full penalty for sin, that we don't need to confess our sins. That, that's just legalism. That's just ritual. We don't need to do it. The blood of Christ cleanses us. That's it. And my response is, well, if the blood of Christ cleanses us, why did John say just two verses later, two sentences later, he said, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It seems to me that if 1 John 1, 7 automatically covered it, then John is inserting something unnecessary just two verses later. He must be real stupid, just not real bright. He must have fallen asleep between verse 7 and uh, woke up the next morning and wrote verses 8 and 9. Uh, then you get other people who come along, and there are a lot of theologians who've taken this position that there's a distinction between cleansing and forgiveness. And so we're cleansed 
And that's uh, by the blood of Christ. That's all we need. Forgiveness is only occurs if that's a problem with, with has created a problem with people. And they get into some real warped and distorted exegesis. But they lose sight of these pictures that God has given us in the Old Testament. And, and they're used by Jesus. When Jesus is uh, washing the feet of the disciples in John chapter 13, he says, you have all been cleansed, positional cleansing, except one of you, which was Judas, who wasn't saved. And But he told Peter, but I need to wash your feet. And what he's showing is that in the washing of the feet, uh, that depicts ongoing experiential uh, cleansing, and that is necessary as you go through the Christian life. And so you can't pray unless there's, first of all, faith in Christ, and secondly, uh, cleansing. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard, and the word there is the idea of if I look at, or if I see, or if I observe, or if I am cognizant of, if I'm thinking about, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. It's just really clear that God isn't going to listen to prayer if a person is out of fellowship or they're not saved. And then the third thing that would happen is the priest would come into the holy place and they would offer this incense, and that is a picture of prayer. They have been cleansed by substitutionary sacrifice. They have been cleansed by the water. And now as they've entered into the uh, holy of, uh, the holy place, they can have Fellowship with God. This is the idea behind Hebrews 10.22, which we'll get into as we go through this next couple of chapters, which reads, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It picks up on this same, uh, this imagery that comes out of the uh, Levitical ritual. So it is only when we're in proper relationship with God that we can have confidence that he hears our prayers. Now, as you would go into, as the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would approach the altar of incense, there was specific procedures that were laid out, and these are described in verses uh, 7 and 8. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. So he would come in, he would offer incense, then he would trim the lamps on the golden menorah. When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. So the incense burns around the clock, 24-7. There's the burning of incense indicating the continual intercessory prayer. There shall be a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Now, as he brought the incense in and he puts it on the, the altar of incense, it is, it, he has to light it. It has to be lit. It has to burn. Where does he get the fire? The fire comes from the fire, the sacrificial fire there at the brazen altar. And that fire at the brazen altar depicts the judgment on the Lord Jesus Christ in his sin. And so there's only one particular fire that can be used at the altar of incense. It had to come from the uh, from the brazen altar. Now, that's the background for understanding what happens in Leviticus chapter 10. So if you have a chance, just turn over 
to Leviticus chapter 10, and we'll just briefly look at the first two verses. This has to do with two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and they are serving as priests in the tabernacle, and they decide that they can come to God on their own terms and not on God's terms, just like so many people think that they can dictate terms to God and that God has to let them into his presence on their conditions rather than on God's conditions. So in verse 1 of Leviticus 10, we read that Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer. Now, there's a picture of these censers here in the reconstruction of these um, utensils, and that's what I have, uh, you see, in the background here on the uh, floor at the base of the altar of incense. These were the uh, tools that were used to uh, blend and uh, to mix up the incense. And then the golden bowl there is the censer that would carry the fire from the uh, altar outside the, outside the tent. So Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, but the fire didn't come from the altar. So that's saying that there's another way to deal with sin, that's what it depicts. There's another way to deal with sin other than the way God says to deal with sin. And on that basis, I'm going to come into the presence of God. And so they uh, bring this incense in and offered profane fire from the Lord. It's not the sanctified, holy, set-apart fire that comes from the brazen altar. They offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. Instantly, God incinerates them. They are just uh, evaporated on the spot from a fire from heaven. And God is emphasizing the fact at the beginning of this that particular dispensation, which was the dispensation of the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament, that you can't define your relationship with God on your own terms. You see the same kind of thing happen somewhere else in the Bible, don't you? Where? When you get into Acts and you have the situation um, where, uh, uh, what's her name? Um, Ananias and Sapphira, very good, just testing you. Ananias and Sapphira, first one slain in the spirit. And they say they sold their land and they gave all the money to the church and they only gave part of it and they lied about it to the Holy Spirit. And so God instantly executed them. Now, he doesn't do that with every believer that lies down through the church age. And he didn't take out every priest that violated the standards in the Old Testament either. You can think about the two sons of Eli and all the horrible things that they did, and God did not execute them either. But at the very beginning, when God establishes his pattern, when there is a violation, God lowers the boom in harsh discipline in order to emphasize that his rules, his laws, are not to be uh, changed or manipulated. So in verse 2, God God, uh, executed them, and they died before the Lord. So there's several other... uh, the, the, The other thing that we point out in this particular verse is that Aaron enters in twice a day offering the incense. Now, that is not a mandate. There's not a mandate there. You can't build a doctrine on that and say that that means that you need to be getting up every morning and praying and that you need to uh, pray again in the evening. It is, But what it is is a picture of this continual uh, 
prayer that should characterize a believer's life. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we're told to pray without ceasing. In the Greek, that's the shortest verse in the Bible, not the verse over in John 11, Jesus wept. That's a three word, actually, that's three words in the, in the uh, Greek. This is the shortest verse in the, in the Greek, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. We're to pray continuously, not uh, not that you're always talking to God, but it is to characterize the believer's life ongoing, ongoing prayer. We see a number of, of examples, though, in the scripture of uh, those who got up early in the morning to pray. Samuel's uh, parents got up early to pray. First Samuel 119, as they went to the tabernacle, Hezekiah in Second Chronicles 29.20. Job arose early to pray, Job one five. This is always good for you morning people. Those of you who aren't morning people, you just hate this. Uh, I remember when I was a counselor at Camp and I, I was always, I guess I always liked being a morning person. But there were, uh, we always had to get up early before you would start your day, which would usually entail all kinds of things. You just get all distracted. The staff would have a time set aside for, for prayer and, and Bible reading to begin every day and would have to get up extra early to do that. And there were always a few people who just weren't morning people and they just hated it. How can God be, how can God want us to pray early in the morning? Well, it's not a mandate, so you're, you get off there. Um, but you have a number of people, even our Lord would get up early in the morning because it's time, it's a time when there's no distractions yet. And that's always my favorite time before the phone starts ringing about nine o'clock and doesn't stop until about nine o'clock at night. Uh, you get that time when there's no interruptions, nothing's going on yet. You can just uh, quiet, spend that time quietly uh, in prayer and reading through the scriptures. And the Lord did that a tremendous amount of times. He would get off by himself. One of my favorite stories out of church history had to do with, San, uh, with uh, uh, John Wesley's mother. And she had, I think, 19 children. Now, when in the world, if you're having 19 children, there's always a screaming baby in the house. How in the world are you ever going to find the time to have a time to be quiet before the Lord, to pray, to read the scriptures? And so Susanna Wesley had a signal. That was back in the days, if you don't know your history, when women wore a lot of petticoats under their dresses. And so what she would do is she would take her outer dress and she would pull it up over her head. Not the whole thing. You know, she's got like layers of petticoats underneath, but she'd pull that outer layer up over her head. And that's, and, and so all these children and everybody in the house would know that that was her time to pray. And they were, were to leave her alone. So sometimes it's hard to find that time to be alone and get away from the distractions, but you have to be creative and figure out a way to do it. So the emphasis here is on the believers to intercede uh, continually. Now, in uh, Leviticus uh, 16.13, we have another description of what the high priest did. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, otherwise he will die. So the, the otherwise he will die is if he doesn't light the incense. So this 
uh, is very important, and it depicts that prayer going before uh, the presence of the Lord, which is indicated by uh, the mercy seat. Uh, Exodus 30, verse 9 says, You shall not offer any strange incense on the altar or, or burnt offering or meal offering, and you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. And the idea there is, of course, there's only one way to God, and he defines uh, that particular way. Uh, everything is done according to very precise uh, regulations. And we've already seen verses 37 and 38 that there was the recipe was not to be duplicated for anything else. And when the priest went in, he was to take with him the blood from the sacrifice at the brazen altar, and then he would put that blood on the four horns of the altar. And those four horns of the altar depict the four corners of the earth. And I talked about that Sunday morning in Revelation, and that is just something related to the directions or the compass, the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. And it's an indication of uh, intercessory prayer and prayer for the world, that God's desire is that all men be saved. And in the Old Testament, Israel had a missionary program. They were to take the gospel to the Gentiles, not in the way that the church is by going out, but they were to have a witness to the Gentiles as Gentiles came to Israel. There were numerous Gentiles that were saved throughout the Old Testament. You have an example of Naaman the Syrian in Elisha's time. You have the Ninevites at the time of, uh, uh, at the time of uh, Jonah. You have Rahab, uh, Ruth, numerous Gentiles who got saved in the, in the Old Testament. So God was very clear as to just what the correct procedures were at the altar of incense. Now, the horns of the altar, this blood sacrifice, was important for emphasizing that this, uh, the way to prayer is paved by the shedding of blood. If you look at Hebrews uh, chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, we learn that it is on the basis of Christ's work on the cross that we have access to the Father described by the, the uh, blood of Christ. If you look at Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal, uh, eternal redemption. So the picture is of that blood that provides the basis for going into the presence of God. Now, prayer is a special privilege that God has given us. In the Old Testament, they could not come into the presence of God except through a priest and through these different aspects of ritual. But in the New Testament, we have direct access to God. Every believer has direct access to God on the basis of Christ's having torn away the veil, opened up access uh, to God. And so prayer is something that we should uh, not take lightly, especially the uh, type of prayer known as intercessory prayer. And we pattern that understanding of intercessory prayer on what Christ does for us. Christ is referred to as our intercessor. 
He is our intercessor, and there are two key passages, two central passages for understanding the intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first is in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. And in the context of Romans 8, 33 to 34, uh, Paul is talking about the privileges that we have as believers and the security that we have as believers in the love of God. He says in verse 31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? And then he says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Then we come to our passage. See, what we've talked about so far is the security of the believer, haven't we? That every person who has trusted in Jesus Christ is secure in his salvation. Who can bring a charge against him? No one can bring a charge against him because those sins have been paid for at the cross. And when you put your faith alone in Christ alone, at that instant God imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and declares you to be just. That is the doctrine of justification by faith. You are not made righteous. That is the Roman Catholic idea of infused righteousness. You are declared righteous. You're still a sinner. Your sin nature is just as active the day after you're saved as it was the day before you were saved. You are not made uh, holy or moral. You are legally given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is the basis for the doctrine for justification. So because you're declared just, not on the basis of anything that you've done, but on the work of Christ on the cross and his righteousness, you can't be condemned. So Paul goes on to say in verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God who intercedes for us. So the intercessory ministry of Christ in this passage is connected to what doctrine? Security. The security of the believer in his salvation. Now that's an important thing to observe here, that the focus of that intercession is related to our security despite our sin or any sin that we might have. Now intercession is a broader category and within that we have a subcategory known as the advocacy of Christ, that Jesus Christ is our advocate. And that is a legal term meaning the one that, that he is our uh, defense attorney so that whenever we are charged with anything, he defends us. This is the idea in First John uh, chapter 2 Uh, verse 1 and 2. My little children, John writes, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. But oops, you might sin. I know some of you and you will sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. See, that's part of Christ's intercessory ministry. He stands there in our stead. He is our defense attorney. Jesus Christ the righteous, because it is his righteousness. The reason John says it is Jesus Christ the righteous is because it's Christ's righteousness that's the basis for our salvation, not our sin or lack of it. 
And then he connects it to a very interesting aspect of Christ's work on the cross. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is a word that is dropped out of usage in, the, in contemporary English, but it is a time-honored word, and it's a good word. It's become a technical theological word, and it's one that should be learned. It means satisfaction. And it has to do with justice. Once again, it's a judicial term, a courtroom term, and it means that God's justice is satisfied by something that has been done. What has been done is Christ paid the penalty in full so that the righteous standard of God is met and God's justice is satisfied. A penalty has been paid for sin. A person has to have three things done in order to get into heaven. The first thing that has to happen is the legal penalty for sin has to be paid. The penalty for sin, the wages of sin, is death. And at the instant that Adam first sinned, he died spiritually. He was separated from God, and he could no longer have a relationship with God or understand the things of God. And that status of spiritual death is passed on to every descendant of Adam that is born of man, so that Paul can say in Ephesians 2.1 that we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. We're alive physically, but we're dead spiritually. And But the penalty for death in terms of its universal uh, judgment of spiritual death was paid for by Christ on the cross. And so that it can be said that Christ died equally for all men. He paid the penalty for every sin including the sin of unbelief. I mean, that's not any different if you're going to exclude the sin of unbelief. The only reason people want to include the sin of unbelief is they misunderstand the uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 12, which I pointed out is a unique sin for Israel, and it has to do with uh, their rejection of Christ as Messiah, and it doesn't mean that they can't be saved. It just means the nation's still going to go through the 70 A.D. Christ, uh, judgment. Okay, so... That first thing is paid for by Christ on the cross. That's the objective payment for sin. It's universal. It's what we, what's referred to as unlimited atonement. But two other things have to happen because experientially we're born dead, so we have to have life, and we're born unrighteous, so we have to have righteousness. When we trust in Christ, then God imputes the righteousness to us and we're declared just, and when we have are declared just simultaneously, he gives to us the life of Christ. We have eternal life. And so that what limits the application of the atonement is volition. If you trust in Christ, then you will be born again or regenerated, and you will be uh, receive the imputation of righteousness and be justified. And if that has happened then because you are justified and born again, Jesus Christ continually intercedes for us. Now, the second passage, the second great passage on Christ's intercessory ministry is in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 25. Hebrews 7, 23 to 25, we read the former priests, that would mean the Levitical priests, or if you remember in Hebrews 7, the argument was that Christ is not a Levitical or Aaronic priest, but he is of the order of Melchizedek, a distinct order of priesthood, a royal priest that can apply not just to Israel, but to all mankind. Melchizedek was a Gentile. 
The former priests, on the one hand, existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's going to save them, what? Forever. That's eternal security. So once again, intercession is related to eternal security. Now, the word that is translated intercession comes from uh, two different Greek words. That one's, The basic word is entunkano, uh, and it's intensified with the preposition huper, huper entunkano. And they have the idea of meeting someone, turning to someone, petitioning, praying, interceding, pleading uh, with someone. That's the basic idea. Used a number of ways and just in terms of a human sense, uh, Paul uh, was pleading with uh, Festus, who was the uh, procurator or proconsul uh, in uh, Israel, Roman proconsul. King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned, me, that's that word for intercession here. The Jews were petitioning Festus to punish Paul. Uh, Romans 8, 26 and 27 talks about the Holy Spirit, that he's the one who intercedes for the saints. So the Holy Spirit intercedes for the saints. And then uh, Romans eight thirty four, which we just looked at, uh, Romans eleven two talked about Elijah pleading with God, Against Israel, same word for intercession, and then our passage in Hebrews seven uh, seven twenty five. So it's the idea of pleading with God. Now there's an argument among theologians whether the presence of God, uh, excuse me, the presence of Christ in heaven is enough, or whether He is verbally articulating His prayer. And I would say on the basis of the Romans 8 passage where the Holy Spirit is interceding for us because we don't know how to pray, that that indicates a verbal articulation of the intercessory prayer. It's not just Christ's physical presence in heaven as our interceder, but he is praying specifically for us. And we have an example of his prayer in John chapter 17. So I want you to turn with me, and in our closing minutes, I'm going to summarize John 17 for you, which is the real Lord's Prayer, not that prayer over uh, near the beginning of Christ's ministry where he's taught his disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven. That's the disciples' prayer. This is the real Lord's Prayer. And it emphasizes his intercession for us. It begins in verse 1. Jesus spoke these words. This is when he's in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Our, our, uh, on his way, excuse me, when he, when he gets aside from himself uh, on the way to the Garden, on the way over across the Kidron. Jesus spoke these words lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. There's a lot that Jesus says in this chapter that is not related to a request. He is praying to the Father in terms of himself, but he makes several specific requests in terms of the disciples 
but he also states specifically in verse 20 that these prayers are not just for these, but for those who believe in me through their word. So let's look at what he says. In verse 11 and 12, you have the first petition that relates to the disciples and to us. He says, now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me. Keep through your name those who you have given me. The Greek word is tereo. This is a word that is used in several places related to eternal security. It means to keep or to guard, to protect. And so it is a prayer related to uh, keeping and eternal security. He says in verse 12, While I was with them in the world, I kept them, same word, tereo, kept them in your name, those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. That was a title for uh, for Judas Iscariot. He's called the son of perdition because he was lost. The same Greek word that's translated perdition is the word that's translated uh, those who are uh, perishing in John 3.16. So he was never a believer. In verse 13 we read, now I speak to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So the first request is related to maintaining uh, security, keeping them. Second request is related to joy. Then the third request is in verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. This is the idea that we cannot be returned back into Satan's domain. We're transferred from the domain of Satan into the kingdom of his beloved son at the instant of our salvation. And so this idea in verse 15 is that we're kept from Satan. Again, it relates to eternal security. Then we have another question, verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So it's a prayer for our spiritual growth and advance. And then in uh, verse uh, 22, we read, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Now, this is a verse that's often taken out of context, and people use that to talk about experiential unity in the body, that, oh, we just need to be one. Christians are so divided. Christ prayed that we would be one. If you look at the context, he's talking about being united in glorification which is, again, related to eternal security. He's not talking about experiential uh, unity in that particular text. He says, um, verse, starting verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are once related to uh, glorification ultimately. So, conclusion, that in the themes of his intercessory prayer in John 17, a dominant theme is security and keeping the believer. He's praying for our spiritual growth. He's praying that our joy may be full. But in at least three of the uh, requests, he is uh, focusing on aspects related to keeping us, guarding us, protecting us from the evil one, and bringing us all into heaven in a unified uh, body of believers, which will occur at the rapture. So the 
intercessory ministry of Jesus is incredibly important. We've seen in Romans 8, it's related to eternal security. Hebrews uh, 9, or excuse me, Hebrews 7, it's related to eternal security. And in his high priestly intercessory prayer in John 17, it is related to other things, but eternal security is a primary element in it. So this is a focal point, and it goes up continuously as it's uh, indicated in the uh, picture of the altar of incense. Next time we'll come back, we'll look at the next uh, aspect of the of the uh, tabernacle. We'll get to the veil and then to the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and just to be encouraged by the fact that we have a high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is seated at your right hand, ever making intercession for us and that he is our advocate whenever we sin. He is the one who declares the fact that we have had our sins paid for and that we are under the uh, imputation of his righteousness and justified. We thank you for the security that we have, that it is dependent not on us, but upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.